Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for checking out this episode of Allow Me to Introduce. My guest today is Kevin Misher, founder of Misher Films and executive producer of Audible's latest podcast series, American Football, How the Gridiron Was Forged. Today, Kevin tells me all about how this project was created, what the audience will learn from listening to the series, and things he learned as a studio production president that have helped him in his career. And with that, allow me to introduce Kevin Misher. So Kevin, before we dive into your, your projects and your career, you know, as a Jersey guy, you were raised in Queens, I have to ask, is it Jets or Giants for you? Jets. Although with, the, with this podcast, I, you know, in the, diving into the lore of the Giants, I, I've got quite a bit of affection for the, uh, the Giants now, and they're sort of the family of fans. But mm-hmm. I, my, we grew up in the shadow of Shea Stadium, so you know, that, that's sort of first and, and painfully first. Well, I, I'm going to take your first answer as Jets, you know, as a Jets fan myself. That's that's what I wanted there to hear. Go. But you're here to talk about um, the new podcast series you've produced, uh, American Football, How the Gridiron Was Forged. Um, it's a new series that tells the story behind America's most popular sport, narrated by actress uh, Kate Mara, presented by Hall of Famer Michael Strahan. Um, your company, Misher Films, also with Smack Productions and the History Channel, um, with additional production services by High Five Content, you know, put this together. And all eight episodes of this first season are available now on Audible. Um, I listened to all eight episodes, binged them oh all. Oh my God, thank you. Um, there are so many incredible stories that, you know, I, I consider myself a, a big football historian. Um, so many stories that I had no idea even existed how do you even begin to to tell a story like this that's so complex like where do you even start i think that was the the tricky part is that it's first off it's a story that's never really been told in its totality anywhere i mean honestly baseball's been oft picked over by both the literary and the and the mainstream media everybody from you know from the left to the right have have sort of embraced baseball historically but football obviously is currently and probably for the foreseeable future um our nation's most popular sport and what we what we found was that there was an actual origin story of we all knew that you know football was a combination rough combination of soccer and rugby but the fact that the league of the nfl and the professional game was a very distinct had a very distinct origin story that was something that was sort of a eureka moment and you know the other thing this thing just doesn't come from the swamps it comes from people who really sort of like fought um, low expectations, if any expectations, and really a system that was in place to prevent them from doing this. And the discovery of that sort of led us to sort of put together sort of a roadmap through all these people from, you know, from Jim Thorpe to Fritz Pollard to George Hallis to Joe Carr um, to Red Grange, people of um, great character, um, great integrity, who really were forging ahead despite all of the obstacles in their way, you know, most notably were who, we, who knew that there was even going to be a market for this. And most notably, what was really most interesting is that the game of football was founded as a sport of the elite, sport of the Ivy Leagues. Everybody knew it was sort of Rutgers and Harvard and Yale's and all of those universities that had created it. But it really came at a very distinct moment in time when America as a country, as a, in the national psyche, nobody thought that war was going to be a part of the American culture anymore, and the and the elite who had always sort of tested their the, the metal of young men on the fields of battle. That was how the leaders of America had all, always been born since our country's origin. Um, they created football 
um, little did they know World War I was coming shortly in the distance. This was after the Spanish Civil War. But they thought football had this sort of this, this mix of strategy and warfare um, and could be organized in a way that the, an audience would watch. And it did. It was incredibly popular in the colleges. But you know, there was no contemplation that it was a professional game or that the masses, other than watching you know, the very privileged people of this country do it, nobody thought that the masses would embrace it as wildly as they did. And really what happened was it became a, a proving ground to African-Americans, Native Americans, and immigrants of this country to sort of prove that they belonged as well. And finding that story was actually what made us um, go, huh, you know what? Here's a great tale with great characters. Well, there were so many things that put the long-term sustainability in jeopardy. You know, players were traded and changed teams just before games started. Owners who considered themselves enemies had to swear truce for the betterment of the league. Was this a theme of just something is new, right? And it's there's so many hurdles that are obviously going to come along the way, but it was the fine-tuning of those hurdles whenever they came up and the willingness to adapt that helped the game in the long run in its infancy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it probably was unique to the game itself. You know, football changes its rules often and, you know, many over decades, over years, over sometimes over seasons, right? And the, uh, it's, it's unique in that aspect, right? The, the other sports sort of have a fixed set of rules and have had them for a long time. Baseball is only now adapting, right, to sort of for marketability, right? But it's interesting that football was, football was a rules breaker. Right. I think Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post even says that, right? It was it, it it somehow reflects our national character, right? And I think that that was what what gave it both both its life and its vibrancy and its sustainability. Um, that it was incredibly adaptable to the times, and it's a reflection. Again, this is sort of another sort of sub theme of it all, right? Is we sort of we posit that our national character is wrapped up in this game. Right. It's messy. It's tough. It's it's strategic. Right. You're trying to you're trying to move move an inch. And sometimes it's very painful and sometimes it's glorious and, and, and beautiful. Right. And it has all of those things that we love. I was, was watching the World Cup recently and there was a really interesting article that I read. I can't remember who wrote it, but um, it was uh, about how soccer. Somebody said soccer isn't an American game. And I'm, by the way, I'm obsessed with the World Cup, so I'm not sure I agree with it. But what I thought was interesting, the point is that American characters, when you do your best and you prove yourself on the pitch or the field of play, you should win, right? There should be winners and losers based on sort of the effort of this and the spirit with which you engage in battle. And that's a very uniquely American thing. And that's what football has. Well, because this required a lot of kind of digging back into the archives, because you're going way back hundred uh, over a hundred years ago, what was the most challenging thing during the production process? Well, we um, well, there's a number. There was a number of sort of challenging moments. I would say the first was sort of breaking the story. Um, my partner in this um, uh, in, at my company uh, is Andy Berman, who did an incredible amount of research to sort of build the pave the path of all of the story elements, right? So that it wasn't just, oh, here, there's no book, right? As I said, so it's not like you go, oh, here's the story, let's go do that. So it really was a sort of painstaking thing to, you know, we're, we come from 
I've predominantly done uh, movies. I would say exclusively done movies up until this podcast. And so we wanted to bring a very cinematic feel to it. And that has a certain, there's certain sort of underlying sort of narrative rules that we were looking and, you know, developing characters in a certain way. And there were limitations to the form, but also opportunities in the form. And so what we did is we, you know, finding the pieces where you could see the handoff, pun intended, I guess, from uh, Jim Thorpe to Fritz Pollard to George Hallis, and then watching the fact that the game goes from the small towns of Ohio to the big Midwestern cities like Chicago, and then hopscotches across the country to New York as it sort of blows itself up into a truly national game. That was actually something that was really hard to figure out. It actually took a couple of years, right? Um, then the other part was assembling all the elements. You know, we had for a long time assumed that we would tell the story filmically. Um, but the cost of, of doing a period production and doing the game justice on the field is quite difficult. Um, very early in my career, and perhaps we'll talk about that, I did, one of my first movies that I worked on was Rudy. And, you know, to represent the game in the way that people see the game in their heads and are used to seeing the game on film is very, very difficult, right? You can probably look at the films that did it well and didn't do it well, and you know them instantly, right? Because it's a, it's a tactile thing. So I think what we were trying to do was make sure that we could tell the story right. So we pivoted to the to this podcast form um, when we realized we could do it. And and Michael Strahan and his partner, Constance Schwartz Marini coming aboard was instrumental. Um, you know, the NFL was helpful to us in telling the story. Um, though though it's a story that's told independently of them, it is ultimately about them or telling about their you know, fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers. So it's very much tied up in the in the sort of the DNA of the league. Um, and then um, Michael and and um, got you know brought Caden, obviously a, a sign of two um, football families, which is amazing and an extraordinary actress in her own right. Um, that was a, a real get for us. And then there were sort of a number of other key elements, which was trying to find a way to take. You're interested in in the history and the history of sport and the history of 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 of, of culture, but not everybody is right. And it's the type of thing where a lot of people sort of tune out when it starts to feel sepia toned. So we were like, how do we make this vibrant? And what one of one of the things that I think hopefully was very apparent is that all the issues that were happening in 1920 are current. They're the same issues. They just the storylines repeat every 5, 10, 15, 20 years over and over and over. And so we brought it um, through Michael and, and Constance helped bring in these con very contemporary voices from Peyton Manning to Aaron Rodgers to Hall of Famers like Mike, Mike Ditka. Um, uh, and a host of others. And what we were able to do was use contemporary voices, both their knowledge of their history and also their um, ability to tell the story from their point of view, of whether it's a field's eye view, a sideline's eye view, or an executive suite's eye view. That gave it a, a tactile feel that made it feel very vibrant. And then the last sort of dose of reality, which I think for me is the special sauce of it, is having the announcers do live recreate contemporary announcers do live recreations of old games and you know hearing Chris Berman say you know he could go all the way talking about a game in the 1920s it's it's just fantastic well so I, I think the audience for this is so large because it's not, it's not just for football fans it's also a, like a, a history document documentary uh what's something that you'd like the audience to either learn or take out from listening to the series that maybe going in they they weren't expecting i think that there's a um well 
I think if you, I think there's, I would say there's two different levels, right? I think if you love the game, you're going to learn more about the game. And if you're one of those guys who um, plays Madden and, you know, dissects on, you know, drive time sports radio and you're dissecting every last little minute of every play and every move and every, every, um, every piece of every game, um, there's, there's an interesting aspect of our show where you can actually feel, hopefully you felt it sort of, you can, you can feel and see the moments where the game evolved. We didn't dive too deeply into them because it's not a, it's not total, it shouldn't only be for geeks. It should be for all fans. And by the way, all, all audiences should be able to enjoy it as a character piece, as I said. But I think the thing that was most important for, you know, to be, have fidelity to the fan was making sure that the sort of the growth of the game itself, you can see the forward paths. You can see the points from field goals change in real time. Right, you can actually feel it, and in fact, you know, as you saw when that when that the youngest brother of that family of Nessers, our Hanson brothers, right, are is standing on the field at the end. We even make a moment where it's like, wow, how how much the game has changed. And then there's sort of the fact that football, and this I think is sort of to to the general audience, to anybody, is that football always has been the engine of the entertainment industrial complex of this nation. Right. And that actually was sort of a, a, a ter secondary or tertiary discovery that was sort of delightful. Right. Is that Red Granger's doing movies. He was on Wheaties boxes. And there was a moment in time where one or two, you know, George Halas and CeCe Pyle, this agent, had these ideas that were not commonplace. Now seems so de rigueur. Right. But what happened back then was somebody had to think of this will sell. Right. And so the but those two angles, I think, create this vibrancy to the show where it's like, oh, I really didn't know that. And it's a story that, you know, as you said, it was important for us after breaking the story and discovering it, we wanted to get it, we wanted to get it down somewhere, right? Like, you know, like Ken Burns got the baseball documentary done. I mean, we should be, be so lucky and so gloriously received as that wonderful piece. But, um, you know, we got it down and we told the story and, and, it's, and it's all factual. Well, uh, what's what's funny, not funny, but interesting is in episode eight, you had mentioned Red Red Grange going on to do films. And then you have Peyton and Eli Manning talking about how they started getting into doing commercials. And, and it's almost like people nowadays can can see the correlation of it's not too different from from back then that it is now. And, and I thought that that was just fascinating where it's these little things where it's like, you think about old football and you're like, oh, it's nothing like it is now. Well, in, in all honesty, sure, it's developed and evolved, but there are some core similarities. And I, and I thought that would, that was super interesting. Yeah, we, lo we love that. And, you know, even the, the, the animosity, you know, on the field animosity between the, the Bears and the, and the Packers, right? It came from a place. And that actually, and that'll be part of season two. It's, it will drive the subsequent popularity of the league to get even bigger. So, you know, those, those, those discoveries for the fan, you know, can geek out on it. And for the general audience member, you're watching, you know, George Hallis and Curly Lambeau, who hopefully we make feel flesh and blood, understand where the, where the, where the two teams, why the two teams don't like each other. Well, and I also think fans now watching a Bears game, they see, uh, you know, uh, George Hallis's initials on their sleeves. Now they know what those initials actually mean. Um, yeah. but I, I wanted to jump backwards for a minute and, and look at your, your career journey. One thing I find so interesting is that nobody's path is ever the same, right? There, there's always twists and turns that nobody can replicate. 
You graduated from Penn with a degree in economics, but then jumped right into the entertainment industry as a financial analyst at HBO. Did you always know you wanted to get into entertainment? Did it take some time to kind of feel out and see where you fit in? No, I, the, the business school thing was the divot. Everything else was sort of geared towards it. I grew up, as we talked about earlier, I, I grew up in Queens. Um, my father was a dentist. My mom was, had, small, had a small business and was a homemaker for many years. And I didn't have any connections to the business and you know, movie making or making television shows, whatever it was, just seemed so far away and distant. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know how... I didn't know that there was a path to get there. So, but I always loved movies. That was sort of the common theme in my life. I was, I was the type of kid who always walked out of every movie and just said, oh, that was my favorite movie ever. Um, so um, Penn was the best school I got into, pretty good school. And so it was really a, it was an opportunity to just go to a, go to a terrific school, you know, not, not so, but very significantly, it was not so far from home, which was important at that time in my life. You know, my, parents, we all, you know, everybody sort of stayed sheltered. I wasn't equipped to travel cross country at the age of 18. Um, but when I got out, I got a job at HBO and I was doing finance on Michael Fuchs, who was the then, then CEO. I was very fortunate. I sort of did a little trick that worked. Um, I put personal and confidential on all of my, my employment submission letters. And it so happened that Michael Fuchs, who then legendary, then CEO of, of HBO, um, he had, had a temp that day and read it and liked the letter, brought me in and gave me a job. But it was a financial job, which was what I was coming from. I was coming from Wharton. So it was the job that I thought was right for me. Um, you know, and I was tangentially involved with the entertainment business at that point, obviously. HBO then and now was a, a big mover of, of product. Um, and at that point, it was really, really on its upshoot, creating itself. Um, but I wasn't really involved in any of the creativity. So I started to read scripts freelance and um, just on the side for, for nothing, frankly, just to sort of get experience. And the guy who I, um, who worked at HBO, who was in charge of that department, I just asked him and said, how do I, how do, I do this and not the finance job? And he said, uh, you should move to LA, you'll have a better opportunity at it. And so I did, right? And at that point I just ripped the Band-Aid and you know, sort of within a month, hop popped in a plane, severed, severed the elements of my life that I needed to, you know, got rid of the apartment, you know, broke up with the girlfriend. It was like all the traditional, like, storybook stuff, like, you shouldn't do. I, I just did. And then I, I was, again, fortunate enough out there that I was able to get a job in a mailroom. And then I had a very traditional path. You know, the mailroom is obviously the story place where everybody begins. But that was, <clears throat> that was, so the, the, the school was the pivot. Um, it was the it was necessary because it gave me confidence and an education and, a, and an understanding of business that I couldn't have gotten otherwise. That really helped me. Um, and also, when I got out to LA at that period of time, um, is uh, is uh, the entertainment business was a little wild, like Wild Billy Circus story, to use a Springsteen metaphor. There, it's like the uh, the the business. It wasn't like the media business back then. Is Somebody once said to me, it was like, it was like a, it really was like a circus act um, because it was localized, right? It, it wasn't a, it, uh, the, 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 the colleges of this country or people who wanted to be in the hot business. There wasn't, uh, there, and there still isn't a, a real path, but there was really no path. So it was opportunistically a really good time for me to do it. And I had a, and I had a nice trajectory at the beginning because 
I think I came out with a lot of energy and ambition and, and, and a work ethic that had been born of the hard work that I had done previously and gave me an opportunity pretty quickly to, to do some good stuff. Hopefully some good stuff. People can judge that. <laughs> well, you ended up at, at TriStar, um, worked on some movies, like you mentioned, Rudy. We'll, we'll debate whether he was onside or offside, but, um, <laughs> Then at the age of 33, you moved from TriStar to Universal Studios, where you became the president of production again at the ripe age of 33. Uh, was there anything that may have caught you off guard from jumping into such a prominent role? Well, I, the business was different back then. Um, I, you know, now I'm like an old hand, so it really that sounds like something people used to tell me, but. You know, it's a it's a very different business then and now. Like I don't I think again, as I said, the opportunity there in those days was that there was a lot of opportunity, right? And um, the movies were the apex of the entertainment product. There wasn't YouTube and Shorts and TikTok. There was right. There was nothing else. And even in the hierarchy between movies and and television, um, movies were the A and the A type entertainment, right? Um, it was where the movie stars were. Um, and now, funny, I just was reading, I think today something came out about, you know, where have all the movie stars gone? And, and I, I could debate that because I think there are some really wonderful movie stars who everybody will go see. But the interesting thing for me back in the day is that I always knew that if I found, I had, I, I had a lot of confidence in my taste and that that was borne out by reading, 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 reading a lot of scripts. And then over time, you start to be like, oh, the ones that I'm liking are the ones getting made. And the ones that I liked a lot are the, are the better ones. And you know, there are reasons sometimes why they're better or not. But generally, I started to feel a level of confidence with my choices. So I started to realize that if I could get a movie star you know, who mattered at the box office, interested in the material that I liked and was pushing, I could get a movie made. And that was and that was sort of the basic rules of the day. And that my if I give if I gave a script without a movie star to my boss, the, there was a 50-50 shot, that's probably a great a great shot, right? But 50-50 shot that they were going to like it. If I gave that same script to them with Brad Pitt interested, they were going to love it and want to make it. Right? So that and that was how it was easier back then I didn't need IP necessarily. Um, although that came into play later, but th those were those early days where it wasn't, it was less of a, it was less of a chess game. Um, I mean, certainly there were moves to make, but it, it was less of a, uh, it was less of a. There was a simple, the more simple recipe than it yes. is now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So in 2001, you left Universal to form Mr. Films. Um, what was your vision at that time when you decided to, to start your own company and why was it the right time then to do it? Um, when I was, I didn't have any vision. I, I really didn't have any vision. It was a little, it was a little more complicated than just leaving. It was one of those things, you know, everybody gets fired from their job. So it was, it was, a, it was a little more complicated than just straightforward, but it was half my doing and half not my doing. I don't know that time and place was necessarily my choice, right? It's sort of like, when you run a studio, it's like being a, a coach or a manager. You're, you know, your your half life is ticking from the second the job starts. I had a really great run, so I was looking for something different inside the job that the job could provide. I don't honestly know that I had a vision when I started, and um, I had been a lifelong executive, 
and you know, executive and a producer sit on opposite sides of the same table, but the jobs are distinct, right? One sort of provides the, the resource capital for the product and then manages it from, from the bench or from the, from the booth, right? Um, the other person is on the line doing all of the work. And I, it was a new experience for me, honestly. Like I had never been out on a set for you know, days and weeks and months. Um, and managing every last, you know, ebb and flow of a production. So, um, frankly, that was um, the management of those first few movies was so challenging for me that um, I would say I didn't, I couldn't get to the vision, right? I was trying to stay above water all the time. Again, I knew what I was doing to get movies made and to get, I, I would hope, a reasonable quality of product in the marketplace, both from a commercial side and a, and a creative side. So I was able to continue to work, but it took a few years of dog paddling, as it were, to get to the place where I could be like, oh, there's my North Star. So, it, you know, I, I wouldn't say I started my company with sort of a grand, here's what we're going to do. I probably had 15 of them, um, all of which, you know, sort of crashed and burned and, and built the next one up on the ashes of the previous one. So coming full circle now, American Football is the first audio storytelling project of Misher Films. Is this something that you want to do more of in the future? Oh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. First off, the greatest thing is you're, I stayed at home. I mean, not literally at home, but I was in L.A. with my family and, you know, I have an office and I have people who I work with, who are Andy Berman, as I said, and, and um, some other people um, whom I love. Um, and uh, they all work really hard and I love to be with them. Right. And it's great in a very creative, vibrant environment. And so going away on production there, you know, obviously you're focused on that one thing and you got to make it great. But what's great about this was we were able to do it in the office every day so that the vibrancy of that was terrific. I also like the sort of the instantaneousness of it, um, uh, you know, developing a, a, a story like this. It's not easier. It's different. But there's a there's a straightforwardness to it where the plot mechanics have to work, we were imparting some, um, you know, whatever rules and um, instincts that we usually apply to movies into the, into the story of mm -hmm. American football. And hopefully that makes it really vibrant and the characters pop. And they're not just, again, sort of like oh, names that you've heard, but they're real flesh and blood people. I mean, George Hallis, his mother didn't want him to play football, right? Whose mother didn't, whose, mo whose mother didn't say don't play football, right? Everybody and can relate. He, yeah. Yeah, and so we worked really hard for those moments, but those moments, once they happened, you could you know, pass it over to our production. The production and gave it to Kate, Kate read it, and then you can start to build sort of the math of, oh, let's, get, let's see if we can get Peyton, make sure when Peyton comes in, he's gonna give us 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it was, um, he, make sure we ask him what it was like to come back from injury. Right, so he could reflect those moments. Um, you know, the challenge, the really challenging part of it, sometimes you miss those moments, right? Because you're sort of like, you're re we were rebooting story at the same time we were doing interviews, just the nature of this particular production. So sometimes we're like, ah, oh, we didn't get Peyton to say what he wants. You know, we need, you know, we need so-and-so. So those things were different. It's like, did we get Eli Manning to talk about what it's like to, you know, go down the, the Canyon of Heroes, right? Because Jim Thorpe did that, right? We're just adding the Jim Thorpe thing. So. Those were things that were happening on the fly, but those all happened in a very compressed environment. And, and the other thing I'll say, last thing I'll say about this that was great was it was a very compressed environment. After all those years of research, the green light to airing has been about three and a half months. Mm -hmm. And the speed to create 
eight episodes that held together and edit out the volume of the other information that could have been. It was sort of exhilarating. It was like running a marathon at a sprinter's pace. It was sort of, sort of crazy, but fun, like a two minute drill at every moment. That's great. Now I, w- I want to finish up by asking you for some context because doing my background research, you know, before speaking with you, I stumbled upon the always reliable Wikipedia and this sounded <laughs> way too detailed to not be true. So I have to okay. ask the line reads while Misher has an accomplished film career, he is best known for his game winning oh, shot in the 1980 camp Equinunk. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Upper senior Ooh, basketball game. Yeah. Is yeah. that true? I really thought you were going to challenge me on like an arcane sports fact that we got wrong. Oh and no! The fact that I really—that's what I thought you were going to do. I think it'd be like George Hallis did this, and so and so, and you guys said this. Uh, yeah, that somebody's put that on my Wikipedia. I have no idea who put that on, but I went to sleepaway camp like many boys in um, of my era, then and now, I guess. And uh, you know, like all great Jewish East Coast kids, their greatest sports moment happens in sleepaway camp. So that was that was mine, and somebody had every. By the way, I've taken that off or tried to have it taken off like five times, and they always sneak it back in. And I had no idea who put it on. It was not me. Now, so we were talking before we came on about Bruce Springsteen, and I'm a huge Springsteen fan. Uh, with your well, Billy Circus reference, I assume you are as well. What are the must listen to albums for somebody trying to get into Springsteen? Well, I got to think you got to do the classics, right? You got to do Born to Run. I mean, he on that Howard Stern interview he just did, he was talking about, you know, that's the album that, you know, the song and album that's going to follow him. Darkness was my first album. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then my sort of core was I, the Darkness was the first one I heard at camp, ironically. Um, then The River was the first sort of real time album for me in the first shows that I saw. So I have a very, Deep connection to the river, and I and I loved going to see the you know the tour. The what was it the last tour where it was all river all yes, the time. Yes, 2016. Right? Yeah, but my favorite album is Wild the Innocent New Street Shuffle. Okay, so I have a I have a dog named Rosalita. So there you go. Nothing nothing more needs to be said after that. That's perfect. That's really great. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it, and I uh, hope. We could speak again soon. Again, all eight episodes of season one are out right now. Please go check it out. Kevin, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good fun.